Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you. You alone are deserving of our worship and adoration and praise. And it is our privilege, it is our delight to give back to you a portion of all that you have given to us. We pray that you would use these gifts, these tithes and offerings for the good of your church, the extension of your kingdom, and for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, if you would, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 29, and I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Psalm 29, which is a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And may the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, since I uh, love the Psalms, and folks know that, people often ask me, what is my favorite psalm? And uh, my answer is usually, well, the one that I'm preaching on at the moment. Uh, But when I'm not preaching on any psalm at all, this one is certainly a high contender. Um, I've I've thought about preaching on this psalm a a number of times, and I actually started to prepare a a while back to preach here on this psalm, but uh, I just thought the Lord had me preaching on other things at that time. But uh, there are actually three paragraphs in this psalm. You may have noticed as we're reading it, that there are some extra white spaces, and this psalm naturally divides into three parts. And in God's providence and in His will, I'll be preaching here three times this summer. So I thought it's perfect, right? One paragraph for each sermon. 
I actually thought about preaching one sermon on this psalm, and I knew that would be impossible. You've been very gracious to me uh, over the years as I've preached here and probably transgressed that boundary of the length of a good sermon more than once. But I thought I I wouldn't even try to preach this in one uh, particular sermon. So we're going to look at this, Lord willing, over the summer. I'll be here once each month, and uh, we're going to look at each one of these paragraphs. Uh, it is a most marvelous piece of poetry and a, and a wonderful revelation of who God is and why and how we worship him. In the first, uh, just in the first three verses, there's a call to worship. In the first two verses, there's a call to worship. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And then uh, you'll just notice in those verses, it's ascribe, 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 worship. They're all imperatives. And then in your translation, there's some extra white space. And in the next verses, three through nine, it's that repetition, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. It's all about what motivates us to worship and, and reasons that God gives us as to why he's worthy of our worship. Then at the end of verse nine, you'll notice some more white space. And then it changes again where we have the, the Lord as the topic again. The Lord reigns, the Lord gives, the Lord grants, the Lord blesses. Uh, and so there are three beautiful uh, paragraphs or strophes here. This morning, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 and listen to our call to worship. Now, I'd like to just do a, uh, one thing. I'd like to ask these verses four questions And we'll see what answers these verses yield to these four questions. And the first question is, uh, who is called to worship? And since we're reading a psalm and it's for ancient Israel, our natural inclination is to say that the people that are being called to worship are the ancient Israelites. Uh, And that would be kind of on target, but at the beginning stage, it's off target. This psalm is actually calling on angels to worship. Uh, we, we just did that, right, in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, you heavenly hosts. We actually addressed the angels in heaven, and we called upon them to worship God. But in the doxology, that's kind of secondary. The doxology is primarily a call for us to worship, but in this psalm, it's reversed, In this psalm, the primary addressees are the angels. Now, it depends on your translation, but I'm guessing your translation says something like heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Uh, Something of that sort. Maybe it says angels, or maybe it says sons of God. If it says sons of God, it's pretty close to the Hebrew text. If it were even closer, it would say sons of gods, plural. The Hebrews, b'nai elim, woodenly, uh, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of gods. Now that's rather odd, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It makes sense in its ancient context, and I'll talk a little bit about this later on. But remember, in the ancient world, all of Israel's surrounding neighbors worshipped a multitude of gods. But they typically were were not just polytheists, we call them henotheists. And that means that out of all the gods they worshipped, one was the supreme god, and all the others were lesser gods. So there was like a pecking order. 
And those lower deities below the chief god take a wild guess as to what they were called in the ancient world. Sons of gods. Uh, But Israel can't have sons of gods, can Israel? Why not? We read it in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. There is only one God. If, If the Bible is unique in any way in its ancient world, in its ancient setting, it's in proclaiming that there's only one true and living God against the backdrop of the multitude of gods of all the neighbors. But the language from the ancient world is used... We talked about that before, remember, in that kind of edgy sermon on creation, looking at the, the, the language of the Bible and how the Bible speaks and paints a picture of the, of the creation in which we live. And this is like that. The poet is using the language of the ancient world, sons of gods, but using it in an Israelite context where these sons of gods refer to angels. Now take a look at uh, Psalm 89.6. Psalm 89 and verse 6. We could look elsewhere, but this will do. Here in Psalm 89, 6, the psalmist says, For who in the skies, that's a way of referring to heaven, who in heaven above can compare with the Lord? If we're asking the question, there must be somebody else up there. Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? or the sons of gods, or the angels. Now, you may remember uh, another story. Uh, You may remember a story from 1 Kings, when uh, Ahab, Ahab's the bad guy, and the primary reason why Ahab is the bad guy, keep this in mind for later, is because Ahab was fostering the worship of Baal, the deity of the surrounding Canaanites, Boo Ahab. So, um, God wants to configure things so that Ahab will go to his death. And the text gives us a window into heaven. It's kind of like Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. I saw the Lord high and seated and on his throne and all the angels around him were singing. Like that. Micaiah is a prophet. And Micaiah gets a window into heaven. I'll just take a moment and tell you a little bit more about the story. Ahab wants to go to war, but he doesn't want to go alone. He wants, uh, an, he wants another king to go with him, the king of Judah. And the king of Judah says, okay, I'll go, but can we at least consult one of God's prophets to find out if we're going to win or not? And so Ahab consults all these Baal prophets. And the guy said, yeah, but isn't there a prophet of the Lord we consult? And Ahab says, yeah, there's one, but I hate him. Because he always prophesies bad. He never prophesies anything good. And the other king says, oh, you shouldn't say that. Uh, Let's hear what the guy has to say. So they send some messengers to Micaiah, this prophet. And they say, look, everybody's giving the party line. Go to battle and we'll win. So when you get before King Ahab, give the party line." Micaiah said, okay. Micaiah appears before the king, and Ahab says, are we going to win or lose? He says, oh, you're going to, you're going to win. Now, see, we can't see the body language. We can't see the facial expressions, but Ahab could. Ahab said, how many times do I have to tell you not to toy with me? Tell me the truth. Okay, you want the truth? Here it is. I saw the Lord. I got a picture into heaven. 
God was seated on his throne with all the angels surrounding him. And God was saying, how can we get Ahab to go to his death? And one angel said, I got an idea. And God said, that one will never work. Another angel said, I got an idea. God said, that one will never work. Another angel said, I've got an idea. I'll go as a lying spirit in the mouths of all the prophets to tell Ahab he's going to win when he's going to lose. God said, that's a great idea. Let's use that one. Now, I'm going to leave the ethical problems of that to have John Frame come down and preach a sermon on that one sometime. But that's just what the text says. That's what I'm telling you. The point is, it's an illustration of these angels who are surrounding the throne, who in Isaiah 6 are singing to the glory of God. And in this psalm, David is talking to the angels and he's calling upon these sons of the gods to worship uh, the Lord. Now, that's explicit. But implicitly, ancient Israelites were also being called to worship, and so are you. Uh, Psalm 150, verse 1. After the initial praise the Lord, it says, Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the highest heavens. You see, the sanctuary would be on earth, and God is to be praised in the highest heavens as well. So who is it that should be worshiping God? Humans or angels? Both. Yes. And so you see, there's a, we've talked about this before, the connection between what goes on in heaven and what goes on on the earth. So while the psalmist is calling upon the angels to worship God, the angelic worship in heaven is to be a, refer, is to be a reflection of and joined to the human worship of God on the earth. Uh, This afternoon, if you have a few moments, take a look at another masterful psalm, uh, Psalm 148. Psalm 148 divides into two parts. The first part, praise God in the heavens. The second part, praise God on the earth. That's the way the Bible does it. Heaven and earth united together in the worship of God. And so just like in the doxology, we say, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him, all creatures here below. We can't stop there. Following the biblical pattern, the doxology goes on to say, uh, praise God, I forget the words now, but it's everybody that's up there. You get the point. Uh, The doxology is following that biblical pattern. That God is so grand, so glorious, so powerful, that it it doesn't do just to worship God on earth. He must be worshipped in heaven. He can't simply be worshipped in heaven. He must also be worshipped on the earth. I I think Zach said something to that effect. Maybe before the doxology or in one of his prayers, I forget. But it was uniting what we were doing here with what's going on everywhere. uh, Throughout the world and throughout God's unseen world as well. So who is called to worship uh, in this masterful psalm? It's the sons of gods. It's the heavenly beings. It's the angels who surround the throne. And it's you who join in that worship. Uh, My guess is that none of you have seen an angel lately. My guess is since you're Presbyterians, if you did, you're not telling anybody about it. (laughs) But they're a reality. I don't know, but what they're not in this room with us right now. 
We need not think about them being 15 billion light years away at the edge of the universe. I don't know. These are unseen things. But God once in a while does give people the ability to see the unseen. He did it for Isaiah. He did it for Micaiah. Uh, And it's a reality. And what, what we are doing when we come to worship God is we're joining in with that entire unseen reality that is not bounded by this number of people or even bounded by the size of this room, but it transcends all of this. What we're doing is much, much bigger. I want you to know something, um, and, and I know you probably know this in general, but just to remind you of it, before the worship service, uh, right on the other side of that wall, the elders always meet and chat and sometimes do a little bit of business, but always pray. And they always pray for this worship service. And uh, they, they always pray that it would be a, a, a spiritual reality in your lives, that God would be worshipped as he ought to be worshipped. And, and part of that is for us to see just how big our worship is. And how big our worship is, is not bound by how many people are in the room. It's something much, much bigger than that. And I don't care if there are 5,000 people in the room. It's much, much bigger than that because our earthly worship is united to what's going on in the unseen world. Who is called to worship? Now, the second question, what are we to do in worship? And this text says two things. You'll notice that um, uh, probably in your translation, verses 1 and 2 are two separate poetic lines. And you can tell that because the beginning of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 are all the way out on the margin. I think this is one poetic line and it goes, ascribe, 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 worship. Hebrew poets, Hebrew authors often do that. They love to get you into the rhythm And then once they get you into the rhythm, they stop the rhythm by changing things up. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Here comes the end. Worship. So there are two things that we do in worship. We ascribe and we, well, we'll talk about that word worship in a moment. But first of all, ascribe. Ascribe, attribute, give. That's what we're doing. We're giving something in worship. We certainly are receiving when we worship, But we're also here to give, primarily here to give. To give what? This psalm says to give two things, and the first one is glory. Give glory. We've talked about this word before. It's the Hebrew word kavod. And you'll remember, uh, hopefully, that uh, Hebrew glory has three components. It's what one accomplishes. Remember, like in Psalm... uh, um, uh, 24, the, uh, no, no, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament displays his handiwork, glory, handiwork, what is the glory of God? It's his handiwork, it's what he's accomplished in creation, it's what he's accomplished in redemption, glory is what one accomplishes, glory is one's own sense of worth and dignity because of what one has accomplished. And then glory is the honor that is given to other, others by the community for what one has accomplished. It's all of that. Here when it says give glory to God, given that rich understanding of kavod, what it's saying is uh, 
all that you see God accomplishing, in particular in the creation, all that you see him accomplishing, you have got to honor him. You've got to honor him for everything he has done in creation, in providence, uh, in redemption. You've got to give that glory to God. We're going to come back to that point momentarily. But not only glory, also strength. Uh, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Honor God for his power. Now, we're going to take a whole sermon, Lord willing, next time to talk about God's glory and God's power. In particular, we're going to talk about how God's glory and how God's power show up in God's creation because that's what the next verses are all about. A grand display of God's glory and God's power. And people from Central Florida will get that because it's a description of a wonderful electrical storm. If you're from the Midwest, you'll get it. Uh, If you're from Central Florida, you'll get it because that's where we see two things. We see the glory of God and we see the power of God. And when we see it, we're to ascribe that to God. More on that in a moment. Well, the other thing that we're to do in worship is not only honor God for things like his glory and his power, we're also to worship. That's the way this word is usually translated. Uh, I've taught you some Hebrew words along the way. Usually they're easy ones like kavod. Everybody say kavod. And of course, you all know the word shalom. Say shalom. Okay. Hebrew vocabulary is most of the time like two syllables. Once in a while, three syllables. This is a long one. Try this one. Hishtachavu. That's pretty good. Uh, that's what this word is. And it's, a, it's an odd word. It's an odd word in Hebrew. In fact, it was misunderstood for many, many years. Um, usually translated worship, but that's kind of not the best translation because it's a little bit generic. And the other thing is, what we're to do for God here, people do for like the king as well. Here are some, uh, some substitute words for worship. One is bow. The other is prostrate. Prostrate yourself. Uh, perhaps think of a Muslim at prayer. Forehead on the ground. That's a pretty good picture of this word. It's to bow, and it's to bow in honor. Uh, If you know Asians, any Asians, if if you see two Asian men walk up to each other to greet each other, if you don't know them, you can always tell, even if you can't see the difference, You can always tell who's older out of the two. How do you know who's older? The younger one does what? The younger, they both bow, but the younger one bows a little bit further. So uh, God's not so much telling us that we have to become like Muslims and when we pray, we have to put our forehead to the ground three times. I think the Bible is more interested in the point that it's making than our posture. Uh, posture in worship. You can, you can get, have biblical rationale for kneeling when we pray, for standing when we pray, for raising our hands. The Bible gives us all sorts of different body language and postures in our worship. It's not so much which one we use as to why it is we're using which one we're using. 
Uh, when you pray in public worship, do you lift your head up or do you put your head down? There, there is symbolism in whatever you're doing. None of, that, none of that is neutral. It's all communicating something. And when God's talking about this prostration, uh, he's making a point. And the point goes along with the honor. And if you think of those two Korean men, you'll get the picture. That when we worship, our, our body language, our posture is to be one that honors. Again, God's not so much interested in what is going on in our bodies as he is interested in what's going on in our souls. And of course, it's always good when what's going on in our body reflects what's going on in our soul. You know, right now, for example, we're doing it just the opposite of what they did in the ancient days. In ancient days, what we would be doing is I would be sitting and you would be standing. The teacher sat the, the students stood. That's always the way it was done. Uh, I, couldn't have been, I couldn't have been an Old Testament preacher. My brain just doesn't work well when I'm sitting. I've got to be on my feet. I've, got, I've tried leading Bible studies, you know, around the coffee table in somebody's living room. Man, that's like pulling teeth for me. I say, I can't walk, I can't walk around. The, the, so the point's not so much the body as it is the heart. And, and again, your elders pray for you, that your heart would be prepared, that your heart would be engaged uh, in the worship of God, that as you are uh, ascribing to Him glory, as you are ascribing to Him power, you are doing it with your lips and you're doing it with your heart. Out of true heartfelt, I think we, we used that word in one of our readings this morning, Heart hyphen devotion. Maybe it was the first. That we would have heart hyphen devotion to the Lord. That's what this psalm is getting at. So what are we to do? We are to, to, we are to ascribe and we are to bow. And when are we to worship? We are to worship, first of all, when God appears. You'll notice that the text says, let me go back there to Psalm twenty. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness or in holy splendor. I think in a translation like the uh, New American Standard, if you read the New American Standard, anybody have one out there? Uh, It sounds like this is talking about, this is a biblical proof text for wearing a suit and tie to church. It sounds like it's saying, worship God in good clothes. Uh, trust me, this is, I wear coats and ties over the last like six months, probably twice a month when I've been here preaching. <laughs> it's not my normal regalia. Um, my father was old school, my, my cabinet making father. I remember when he came to visit us in California for the first time when we lived there, and we were all getting ready to go to church, and I had a pair of slacks on, and I had a, 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 you know, a cotton shirt of some sort on, and my dad just looked at me, and he said, you're going to church like that? <laughs> now, trust me, my, my, this, my dad was not snooty. My dad just said in his own heart, you're going to worship God. That means you ought to go to worship God in your best. Now, my dad didn't care 
if your best had holes in it. That's not the issue. If your best had holes in it and it was dirty and that's the best you had, come and worship God in clothes that are dirty with holes in them. But if that's not your best, you're going to worship God how? And the NASB seems to indicate that we should worship God in splendid clothing. The splendid is not ours here. The splendid is God's. Uh, The splendor is referring to God. Splendor is something you can see. Like splendid clothes or splendid stars or a splendid vista. The splendor here is the splendor. Notice my translation says worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Some translations just say splendor of holiness, and that's more accurate because there is no word his. But the NIV is right in in realizing that this is God's splendor, and it's the splendor of his holiness. Worship the Lord when you can see. When you can see what? When you can see God's holiness. Now, God's holiness is invisible. How can you see God's holiness? God's glory and God's holiness are related to each other. See, glory is something you can see. God's glory is the visible manifestation of God's invisible holiness. That's why the angels in Isaiah 6 say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His... Why didn't they say the whole earth is filled with His holiness? That would make sense, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His holiness. But God's holiness you can't see. Since in the ancient Israelite world, God's glory is His creation, which you can see, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And actually the text says, the fullness of the earth is His glory. See, His glory is the outward manifestation of His invisible splendor. So we would better translate this, ascribe to the Lord the glory of uh, do his name. Worship the Lord when he, is, when he appears in splendid holiness. And when is that? Well, in the poem, that's in the next three verses, so we're not going to say anything more about that. But you can read ahead. But you've already done it. The this morning, you've already seen something. If you looked up at the clouds, I, and I, I got to go home and I got to do a little bit of research. Because as I was driving down, there were just beautiful, big, white, billowy clouds. And right beside them were dark clouds. And now, I, I want to find out why those dark clouds were dark and the white clouds were white and they were right beside each other because they weren't dark clouds like dark rain clouds. So i got to do a little bit of research. But the, the, the striking contrast of the beautiful billowy white clouds and the beautiful billowy black clouds, that's the appearance of God. See, you can't see God because God is spirit. Uh, If you wanted to today, you couldn't see Van Gogh, could you? But you could see something of Van Gogh's genius, couldn't you? You just need to look at some of his paintings. And you can't see the invisible spirit, God. But you can see his glory. You can see his power. Where? 
You just have to look at the creation that he's made. And you don't even have to look outside. You just have to look at the person sitting beside you because they've been made in the image of a glorious God. But it takes eyes of faith. It takes eyes of faith when you see storm clouds not to just say, wow, look, there was evaporation and that produced condensation, uh, uh, condensation into clouds and then precipitation. That's all true enough. But that's also the glory of God. And so science will give us one kind of description of those clouds. And the Bible gives us another kind of description of those clouds. And a rich worldview embraces both of those uh, at the same time. We, we worship the Lord when we see him. When we see him in the splendor of his holiness. When, he see, when we see him in the power and the glory of the creation that he has made. Now, one more question. And with this, we'll wrap it up. Uh, whom are we to worship? I got to take a, another. See, I, I told you there's no way I would try to preach this whole text in one sermon. I'll just tell you a little story. You know I love language, yes or yes? yes. And you know I tend to be kind of a purist, although I, I must admit I've given up with trying to get people to say may instead of can. Uh, it, it's gone. Uh, I'm I'm actually okay with prepositions at the end of uh, phrases and at the end of sentences. Um, I'm I'm just, I'm going downhill rapidly in my old age. But I will admit there's one thing that still is, it grates on me, and it's the improper use of who for whom. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on Microsoft Word and I type in the question, whom should we worship? Now, you know Word is wonderful, yes? Uh, it will um, it'll give us little red lines when we misspell something and we click on it and it gives us the correct spelling. And if we have a grammatical mistake, it'll give us a little green line underneath. I type in whom should we worship, and you know what Microsoft Word did? It gave me a green line. And I clicked on it and it said, who? Yes, Microsoft is now telling me to use improper English. I didn't. I clicked ignore. But I did go on the internet to say, okay, let me do a little bit of research and find out where we are. And of course, all the little articles say, if it's going to be him or her, use whom. If it's he or she, use who. It's all pretty straightforward. But this one fella said, look, and start to listen to yourself. It basically said in informal spoken English, whom is gone. It's gone. Uh, So don't worry about it. Making the mistake of using who for whom is not a big deal. Making the mistake of using whom for who, he said, that's a huge deal because you're going to sound like you're, you know. So he said, in ordinary speech, forget it. Just who is okay. I, I still can't. Not, not on this one. I'm, I'm holding my own. But he said, if you're writing a paper for a professor or if you're applying for a job and you're filling out an application, take the time to use the proper ones in those kinds of written contexts. Okay, enough for the English lesson. Whom are we to worship? 
Well, in the ancient context, the answer is not Baal. See, Baal was the big rival. And the reason why Baal was the big rival is because the ancient Israelites, the ancient Canaanites were farmers. And they had no irrigation. If they were going to get water for their fields, where was it coming from? Rain. And so the deity that could provide rain was the one to worship. And in Canaanite theology, Baal is the storm god. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? The question was not who can send fire from heaven. They didn't really care about that. They were in a three-year drought. What they cared about is who can send rain from heaven. And Baal, no answer, no answer, no answer. And then the Lord sends the rain at the end of the story. See, when, when, when the fire comes down, the story's not over. The story's over at the end of the chapter when the rain comes down. See, Baal was the one that Canaanites said. So ancient Israelites did not abandon the Lord for Baal. They added Baal to the Lord. They needed rain. Their Bible said, the Lord brings it. Their neighbor said, Baal brings it. What's the best thing to do? Cover all my bases and worship the Lord and Baal to guarantee that I have. Because without rain, there's no grain. And without grain, there's no life. Shorten it up. Without rain, there's no life for the ancient Israelite. And so, I can't prove this. But I'm going to give you a little bit more detail the next time I come. We should probably turn the the recording off at this point. But if I had to pay my money and take my pick, I think Psalm 29 was originally written by a Canaanite. And it was originally written by a Canaanite for the worship of Baal. And David took this Canaanite hymn and he basically said, you know, Canaanites, you got some right theology here. There is a God of power. And there is a God of glory who sends the fructifying rain from heaven to earth so that you can have strength and you can have shalom, as we'll see in the third sermon. But it's not Baal. It's the Lord. There are, I have a number of reasons for thinking this. Um, we'll talk about those next time I come, if I remember. But it, you see, it's not Baal. It's the, when you see this power and this glory in creation, you're to worship the Lord. Now, let me just ask you honestly, when's the last time you were tempted to worship Baal? That's not our issue. It was a real issue for the Canaanites. When they saw power and glory, especially power and glory in a thunderstorm, they were, to, they were tempted to say, that's the power and glory of Baal. That's not our problem. Their problem was seeing it and worshiping the wrong God. Our problem is more radical. Our problem is seeing it and not worshiping at all. You see, because we have drunk so deeply of a a scientific perspective, and you know me, I'm not downplaying that. I think that's a valid perspective. But we've abandoned the Bible's perspective on creation. So, for example, as we've talked from Psalm 139, Psalm 139 says nothing about uh, insemination, fertilization, gestation, does it? What's it say? You knit me together in my mother's womb. All that other scientific stuff, it's all on target, it's all accurate, but it's only part of the picture. 
See, the question is, when you, when you go out this afternoon and you take a walk, when you see the wind blowing in the trees, when you see the beautiful sky, if a big thunderstorm comes today, you're not going to be tempted to say, wow, there's the power and glory of Baal. You, if, if you, you're probably going to be tempted just to say, oh, man, you've you, you got to be kidding me. Another thunderstorm today? There goes my golf game. Or Whatever. See, our challenge is for, you see, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And what my prayer is, is that our reflection on this word will produce faith in us. Faith that enables us to see the power and the glory of God in creation. And when we see it, to ascribe that power and glory, not just to natural causes, but to the Lord. And to do it with a heart that is bowed before him in worship. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that by this word you would increase our faith, that we would have the eyes of faith to see you in your power and glory, not only in your work of creation and providence, but also in your work of redemption. And that we would ascribe all of this power and this glory to you from heart hyphen devotion. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.